Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by an incredibly talented writer, actor, and comedian who also is a dear friend of mine, who happened to join me on the UK, Australia, and New Zealand legs of my tour, Moan Rizwan, where I ask, How funny are you, queen? And just really quickly before we get started, I want to send you a little bit of extra love and extra support through this week. I know this is such a difficult and challenging, confounding time. And for anyone who's affected by the coronavirus, which is literally about everyone right now in the world, thank you. I love you. Keep the faith. And I just love you so much. Thanks for listening. And without any further ado, let's hear this week's episode of Getting Curious. Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week is a stunning person, an incredibly um, hilarious comedian. You're a writer. You're a producer. You are someone who I think is a really quickly on their way to becoming a world-renowned sexual comedic icon. Stop it. Um, I like the addition of the word sexual. No one's ever done that before. Yeah, I had to throw it. That well, needs to happen I, more. I've seen you with your top off. So Thank it's, you. Yeah. So welcome to the show. Moana is one. Yeah, Jonathan. I'm so glad we're doing this. So will you just like set the stage for where we are, when we are, like what are we doing? Yeah, so it's 2020. Uh, my name is Moana Rizwan. Uh, I have been doing stand-up comedy for nearly 10 years. No, 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 no. Like, literally, where are we? Oh, where are we? We're in Australia. Doing? Uh, we're doing the Road to Beijing tour. Which actually uh, doesn't go to... To Beijing. It's not, we're not actually going to Beijing. Very important. You say that now in the show. Yeah, I do. Well, I, right? I, do I have to clarify it. Yeah. Because <laughs> post-coronavirus, yeah. it's a very different title. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, so we've done New Zealand, we've done the UK, we're in Australia, um, I'm having the best time. I have never been on a tour that's so joyous and has so many thousands of people in a room who are like, emit from like minute one, ready to just conjure love. You, I, you know this, right? You know what kind of people you attract and the kind of energy you conjure up is magical. Ah. Well, that's like the nicest thing you've ever said to me. So the question is like, who is, I basically want to just like profile you in a really gorgeous way. It's like, who are you? You know, you're such an incredible person. I do feel like you are just right. You're hitting your springboard about to like your chinko into like world domination. And so really it's like, you know, I think you've had like a really interesting kind of road here. Um, And I really just kind of want to hear about it. Yeah. Um, Okay. So... Comma. Yeah, go on. Your job at you're you are a stand-up comedian. Yeah. Uh, but also a scriptwriter and also actor. Cause mama gotta pay them bills. And scriptwriting's hard. Oh my god, it's so hard. Because it's not like and a book. It's so lonely. It's not like a book. Like you have to write like exterior, like so-and-so's doing blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that what you do? Yeah, and then you gotta just be in your room alone all day, imagining what these people might say to each other, and it drives you nuts. And then you leave. After 11 hours of doing that on your laptop, you leave the house and you have an actual human interaction. And I am bugged out. Like, I don't know how to speak to people because I've been in imaginary heads all day. Do you have like an example of this? Like where you go to order coffee and you just, and you just say like something completely otherwise? No, like my housemates will come home from work and then I'll just be in, I'll just be in script writing mode. And I'll just be in like, you know, when you're analyzing 
people and their behavior. And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. Oh, you ch- that's how you chose to get, out, get the milk out of the fridge. Oh, that's so, that says so much about your character and your narrative arc. You know what I mean? And yeah. I need to just stop and like hug them and be like, hi. Because it's like, it's like, <laughs> hello, you're like, human. You're like, what a character choice. Like you went like to the, like to the fridge that particular way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, like in script writing, everything's a metaphor. It's like, uh, oh, you know, this character bought mangoes for the first time and she's eating the mangoes in a way. Like that's saying something about where she is and how happy she is about her divorce. You know what I mean? Wherein because if it, she was really sad about it, she'd be drinking herself silly like in the morning. Yeah, she wouldn't be buying those mangoes in the first place because mangoes represent the fruit of freedom, baby. Oh. They're my life. Okay, well, you know what? Let's let's just kind of I think we should transition here to to mangoes because mangoes are part of what made me fall in love with your style. Sure. I was minding my own business in Canada, um, hosting my very first like special that I had ever done. And I knew that you were that you were there and I had seen some of your things, but never IRL. And so you strut out on stage and you do at the end of your set this beautiful music video about mangoes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a song about mangoes. It's about mangoes. Um, but you know, if you, if once you get to the third verse, maybe it's a bit something, it's about something more than mangoes. Maybe it's about the patriarchy and how men are so scared to buy any other body shower gel that doesn't say four men on it. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. But I don't, I don't tell people that, but you listen to it a few times and you get it. I have, well, I guess really only gotten to listen to it in real life that one time. Yeah. Which is rude of me anyway. It's fine. I'll perform it to you anytime you like. Jonathan. You are right. So, but then sub, like subsequently, like we have to like really reverse. Like we have to like roll back the clocks because I think most stand-up comedians, we can safely say we have a fair amount of baggage that you know we're trying to process mm-hmm. in in like coming to towards mm-hmm. our comedy. A lot of which your comedy is about is about you know your journey. And so you were born in. I was born in Pakistan, and then you came to. The, I came to the UK when I was like three or four. And comma. Yeah. One of the things that you worked on is how gay is Pakistan? Yeah. What did you find out? Um, okay, so so growing up in, in Essex, in England, um, I was always told that like my South Asian identity and my queer identity couldn't coexist. Like, that's not possible. Like, my Pakistani friends used to be like, brother, I can't be gay, I'm Pakistani. As if those have any correlation. You know, that's like saying, I can't be vegan, I'm left-handed. It's just bullshit, right? And so I made this documentary for the BBC where I went to Pakistan and I wanted to know, I wanted to see the side of Pakistan that my parents didn't show me. Uh, So I chose a subtle title, How Gay is Pakistan? Well, you've got to hit the nose on the head sometimes. Yeah, very cryptic. Um... And it was amazing. It was, it was heartbreaking. It was hopeful. I got given this medicine uh, by a religious leader to cure me of my gayness. What uh, was the medicine? I think it was like herbal, so it was probably some herbal thing or paracetamol. I don't know. <laughs> Point is it worked. I'm well straight now. So that's good. What Didn't waste my money there. Um, He's joking if you can't hear it in his voice. He still <laughs> loves dicks so fucking much. Imagine though. Imagine if I came on this podcast to be like, the real reason I'm here to talk to you, Jonathan, is because I've got this medication that will be really great for our community. Imagine if I did no, that. No, and then you busted it out now. Yeah, and I charge you 1,200 rupees for it. 
Well, I once I once did go to this twelve step program, but in this twelve step program, they said that Jesus was the thing that saves you. And then the first mm. thing that the guy asked you when I sat down was like, "Son, do you think Jesus could deliver you from your homosexuality?" And I said, "I've got to get coffee." And I went to Starbucks and I never came back. Yeah, fair I enough. I freaked out. But so anyway, you were in Pakistan. How long did you stay for this documentary? Um, so I was out there for a couple of weeks. Um, I met loads of people. I met, I met, uh, there's an amazing underground queer scene in Lahore and Karachi in Islamabad. And I just, it was incredible, you know, like we never meet, a lot of us n- never meet our queer ancestors. You know what I mean? Like those stories are the first to get killed off. My skin color, I can't deny. Like that, those stories actually have stuck around for me. But the queer stories have never, I never got to meet that wayward auntie that people talk about or that great grandfather who, you know, had to like, get disowned by the family or whatever and if i do get told those stories they're very vague and fogged and covered up in the way the heteronormative world wants to cover them up so to go there and meet face to face people who were fighting every day you know transgender women in karachi who are like who can't help but be visible and i'm doing all this amazing work it was when i say it, it was so healing and i cried and I, I laughed and I smiled and I, it was amazing. It was incredible. It changed so much for me. And if I saw that documentary when I was 17 on television, it would have changed my life, man. It would have saved so many years of trauma and pain and confusion. What year did you make this documentary? Oh, it was a while ago. It was about six years ago. Can people still find? Oh, it's, in, it's on Netflix in America. Oh! Yeah. So Americans... Which is the most people listen to this. So that's so How Gay is Pakistan on Netflix. It's on Netflix. Yeah. So what did you, I mean, so you, that's an interesting thing you're seeing. It's like trans women fighting for their lives in Pakistan because by name, like they, you can visibly see that some of these women are trans. And so like their life is harder because they don't pass in the same way that like other like classically passing like trans people wouldn't have to fight for their lives in the same way. Yeah, but also the transgender community in in South Asia, they have always been a big part of the culture. You know, back in the day, they used to be advisors to emperors and they were highly regarded. Um, and then over time, they got sort of denounced to beggars and, and uh, as things got more religious as well, they got pushed aside. And so a lot of people associate the hijra community which is the transgender community with begging um but i met this amazing woman called bubbly in islamabad who uh who have spent years on a campaign trying to get some of uh, the young trans women that she mentors into jobs like being a receptionist at an art school jobs where people can visibly see oh you've got a job just like me it's all good um yeah it was incredible it was incredible so in a in a because, I mean, Pakistan, like, on a government level is, like, it's is it safe to be openly gay in Pakistan when you were there? When you, like, not obviously as a child, but going back and doing this documentary, did you find that it was safe for people to live openly their lives, to live a homosexual lifestyle there? So on a political level, uh, on a government level, no, it's not legal. Pakistan still runs under the colonial British law. Uh w- which, you know, that means that sodomy is punishable. Um, so that's like the same law that we saw like Alan Turing, who was like instrumental in like cracking the coat of the Nazis, mm-hmm. like be like chemically castrated in as late as like the 50s in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. So like the United Kingdom has like a very, you know, hundreds year long story campaign oh, yeah. of like extreme, 
you know, violence to gay men. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and when they when they colonized that part of the world, that law was brought in. Then they left. They moved on, and <laughs> that part of the world is still suffering from that. Did you law. In, in your time there? Did you? Because I mean, the first thing that makes me think of is like HIV AIDS treatment. Treatment mm. is that when we know that like you know homosexuality is stigmatized, and then HIV AIDS is like so thoroughly stigmatized. It's like if you can't say to your doctor hey, like I'm, you know, having engaging in unprotected Mm. anal sex with other men, you know, it becomes this culture of like secrecy. And like, that's really where like disease can spread. Well, that's the most scary thing, isn't it? When when people are in denial, you're like, guys, can you not act like this is, this doesn't exist because then you're not, you know, in terms of health, on a health level, uh, people are suffering. But they, what they've done, so in in Pakistan, I met this, um, uh, organization called the NAS Mel Health Alliance, and they, with the UN, they get funding to work with people who have HIV and work on a health level. So the government's like, oh, that's okay because that's to do with health. But under that guise, they're also doing some amazing work around solidarity, around community, people having a place to go where they can meet some of their other queer brothers and sisters and non-binary people. So, so, so that that was really hopeful. Okay, we're going to take a really quick break. We're going to be back with more Moan Rizwan right after this. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. We have Moan Rizwan, stunning person, love looking at you, love spending time with you. So, um, what was the organization again that we're just, the name of the organization that was, that's partnering with the UN? Nasmel Health Alliance. So, you, when you look back at that experience now, it's like you said that in the moment, like, you, it was very hopeful, but also very, like, devastating. And, well, I mean, just sad and, like, hopeful all at the same time. Has, have you heard anything, like, from the people that you worked with since? I mean, do you check in with, like, queer stuff in, like, Pakistan? Just, like, when you're reading BBC News or, like, because I always find, like, when I see something, like, on HIV, like, come up on the news, I'm, like, reading it. Mm. Like, do you, like, I mean, I'm sure that that's, like, really stuck with you. Of course, yeah. I think about it, like, nearly every day. But, you know, it's hard because I feel this weird distance with Pakistan because so every time I go to certain places around the world, you know, especially America, I get a really hard time, uh, you know, in um, at border, at the border. What was it called? The, the border, immigrations, customs. The customs, border, that's yeah. it. <laughs> customs. I'm so traumatized by them. I forget to even remember the word. So yeah, when I go to customs, I get a hard time and they they really like interrogate me about why did you go to Pakistan? What was the reason? What's your connection with Pakistan? And it's like, I have to prove myself innocent, you know, just because I'm associated. I was born in that country. I can't help that. Um, and recently, I don't know if I want to talk about it loads, but recently with your tour as well, and you know, I wanted to, we, I was going to support you out in the US, and my visa application just, ah, uh, just terrible, terrible. What happened there? And I couldn't do that, and it was an amazing opportunity, and I wanted to be there, and I wanted to experience it. So I have this funny relationship with Pakistan, where the world, the you know, the embassies, they have, they they associate that country with, you know basically restrict to my freedom, even though I'm a British citizen now. Um, so I don't go back there a lot. Because also... Because it creates, like, headaches. and It creates... Oh, yeah. Because then, like, in terms of... So basically, to me, like, that... It, it points to this... Uh, it's Islamophobia. It's like, I mean, that's what it kind of comes down to. It's like, you know, the United Kingdom, the United States have basically, like, created this, you know, overwhelming 
fear within their own um, enforcement agencies about Islamic people and or about Muslim people, not Islam. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, about Muslim people, and it's so unfair. And I'm, you know, it's I'm so sorry that you had to go through to go through that. So, comma, that I mean, so you were. Do you remember living in Pakistan when you were a little booby baby? I mean, I feel like I remember being like. I think I have like flashes of random memories from being like two and three, like finding a tea bag and like tearing it down the middle because I thought that was like how you made tea. And I remember my mom wow. being like, no, like, cause like there was like a hot cup of water and I was like, Ugh, and, like tore open the tea, like over it. Like, do you have any memories of like, I remember like, um, I remember like what a fence looked like outside our house. And then I remember like the smell of a sweet shop, which I didn't know I remembered until I was in Lahore, my place of birth for this documentary. And I walked past this like hole in the wall sweet shop. And I was like, oh my God, what's that smell? And I, I, I tracked it back. And I just couldn't leave that place. It was so beautiful. And it was like, I went back to my birth. It was, I can't explain it, but Lahore has this sweet smell in the air, which is also with a bit of pollution and dust all mixed together and sweat <laughs> and mangoes and roses. And I'm, oh, it's amazing. And so I, I have little flashes like that in my memory. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was, I was three or four when I came to the UK and, uh, yeah, so I, I ha- definitely have an attachment there. Like a big part of my identity is my Pakistani heritage, and at the same time, I'm kind of I feel like a, a baby of the world, you know. Like I, I think the, I think the reason my my mum really wanted to bring us to the UK was for a better standard of life. There was there was a lot of stuff that she, as this badass person, wanted to do that was she, you know, that she didn't have the resources and were restrictive for her. So she was the first. Um, woman in her village, in her town, to ride a bicycle. And everyone was like, oh, my God, she rides a bicycle. She's a prostitute. So she, she, like, sat on a bicycle seat? Yeah, and she, like, didn't need, you know, the company of a man to travel. And everyone was like, oh, the scandal. Which is, actually, makes no sense, really. Um, So my mum was all, all, you know, she had big dreams. And she knew that the society around her weren't going to let her achieve those dreams. And she knew that she had to hustle and fight her way out of there to give her kids the opportunity to do what they wanted. And so it meant that growing up, there was a very strict environment in the house. My mom was like, I've made way too many sacrifices for you to be getting a B plus in maths. Don't you dare, like, that's a slap in my face. To get a B plus. Oh, in math. Yeah. I thought you said plus in math. So I was like, what's that? You know, plus in math. Everyone took that photo. Yeah. (laughs) So... Wait, so when you went to Lahore to do How Gay is Pakistan, how old, how old were you? I must have been 23, 4. And then how old was your mom when she left Pakistan with you? Good question. Uh, so 20, you you 26 years ago, it was 26 minus 60. Oh, uh, 34? Yeah. So I think, watch it. Be oh, like, she was young. I forget. So, yeah, I mean, I just was wondering, like, what that's like. It's like when you went back, you're like, you know, at that age, like, just thinking about what gender means to a female or to, like, a young mom in Pakistan, what that, like, you know, I think, you know, you don't think of your gender as being something. I mean, obviously, I think in America, we, you know, we just did an episode on, you know, the gender wealth gap. And I think Mm. that we, you know, we talk about, obviously, there's a lot of differences in 
and you know the the possibilities that your like your life can have based on your gender your you know if you are cisgender if you are trans like you know those those all have a lot to do like what your opportunities will be what your struggles will be and you know i think what the opportunities and the struggles will be for our sons and our daughters and you know the differences and similarities are something that we talk about a lot in america but i think what you were just and in the, you know the western world but i think what you're talking about and i think that's something we a lot of people don't think about is like what what your gender means to you if you are born in Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, like the Middle East, it it, it does seem to be, it would be a different conversation than what it would be in the Western mm-hmm. world. Totally. You know, it's funny, like with everything I know now and the conversations I have with my parents, I made a, I made a rule with myself. I said, I'm never, I'm not going to live a lie with my parents because like generation after generation. And I think this is a hangover from colonialism as well. This sort of like, don't make a fuss. Okay. Do as you're told, get by, you know, don't, don't, don't draw outside of the lines too much because you draw attention to yourself and life is hard as it is for us. So that has led to us being so secretive with each other you know, and so I said, I, I always said to myself, I'm going to be really open to my parents. I sat my mum down and I do this in, in the stand up bit and I'm doing it on the on this tour as well. The bit about, you know, telling telling my mum all the shocking things in my life all in one go. Because I was like, listen, mate, you know about my queerness. You might as well know about ketamine and my nipple piercing, you know, and you're going to hear this. Otherwise, one of us is going to die without knowing who the other one is. And I don't want a relationship like that with you, mum or dad. So. I have these conversations and I'm like, yeah, I'm teaching them about all these things and look at me like opening their minds. And then I learned that actually they have had a, you know, a rich life and they've seen it all and they've done it all. They just haven't talked to me about it because that's not what we're meant to do. Your dad too? Oh yeah. I mean, my, you know, like. I feel like he's not in the set as much. Or is he? Yeah. He's a bit more shy. Because you do that, because that lunch story is, the story where you guys are at lunch where you sit her down to talk to her about it is like. Yeah hilarious yeah i mean but i feel like we really you need to buy a ticket and come to the show but rest assured it's fucking hysterical and it's all true my mom i literally told my mom all these shocking things about my life thought you were gonna blow her hair back yeah 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 and then she was like okay great are you done because now it's my turn and then she tells me she's like yeah i've uh i've i used to drink alcohol uh me and your dad are getting a divorce and when i was 15 i was in love with a woman anyway should we get the menu i was like (laughs) mom what and how are you going to just unpack this like just like that it's so casual all those years I've been fighting with you around like what it is for me to be your queer son now you want to bring up that you had a relationship with a woman for six years in the 60s in Pakistan like what and so she's been through it all and she is such a badass and she has always defied the gender norms of where she grew up and what it meant to be you know like this is what bugs me about a lot of the me- like media and television and shows and stories that you hear, especially of women of my mum's age and my mum's background, you see them in a certain way, you know, like the immigrant mother who sort of, you know, who, who the housewife or the one who sort of is in the shadow of, of, her, of her husband who brought the kids over here and, you know, and sort of subservient. And my mum was not, my mum was, she worked three jobs. She was on it in every respect. She was a survivor. She was a hustler. She went out to live in New York, you know, for, for quite, for, she, she tried settling there at first and had this crazy battle with immigration. She used to sell hair clips on Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> and she tells me, she was like, oh yeah, I spend all day being like, dollar, 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 dollar. And then, you know, most of that would go to her, the babysitting fee. So yeah, my mom has broken all the rules 
around gender. So she's actually been a big inspiration for me, you know. Growing up, like, I used to dress up in her clothes all the time. And I think a lot of my work now, which is why I resonate with a lot of your stuff as well. It's just about, you know, just not caring so much about that stuff and not being so binary and boring. It's You know what I mean? And people can't be what they can't see. People need to see a range of people queer people, non-binary people living authentically so that they can feel like they can comfortably exist in their own skin and, you know, in the person they are, right? Yeah. So what was growing up in Essex like? I mean, so Essex is like, it's like pretty close to London. Yeah. Like, can you get the tube from Essex to London? Or you can get an overground. Far? You can get an overground yeah. from Essex to London. Yeah. So did you grow up like, like, would you guys go to London on like the weekends? Like, or was it not so much? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. So do you know, so there's a show called The Only Way is Essex. That's what it's most famous for. And they all talk like this, babes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like, there was a bit of that going on. Uh, And my school actually was very segregated. Like, like all the black people would hang out together. All the Asian people would hang out together. All the white people would hang out together. And then my brothers who, my brother who's five years younger than me, apparently wasn't like that in his year. So I think it changed. But in my year, it was very like, I remember once I had this thing where like me and this girl, like they were like we were potentially going to get together and it was all like looking at it like it was going to happen. And then, you know, there was this this just massive uproar and all the white boys were like, oh, can you beep her name when I say it? Yeah. Okay. Everyone was like, oh, she's getting she's getting with Moan, she's getting with a Pakistani and it caused this massive uproar and then it never happened. Uh, so you got we so could have been happily married by now blocked you <laughs> yeah imagine Rude. imagine if only you you know well i mean do you occasionally tend to go for the random pete or well that's a but do you like vagina sometimes no no so i mean it wasn't gonna work out right, anyway right, right like other than yeah but sexuality and racism yeah both. yeah yeah oh we have to take a really quick break <laughs> we'll be right back to more with moan response so right you can process that. what i just said Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. So we have Mawan Rizwan. And so you moved to the United Kingdom when you were a small boy. And so you and your brother? Uh, me and my sister. You and your sister. And then my brother was born in the UK. Okay, so you and your yeah. sister come uh, with your mummies. And then, um, and then... And then my dad followed like six years later. He had, we had a crazy old battle with immigration. But so even... Because I thought that Pakistan had like a cuter relationship with immigration for the United Kingdom. Because isn't it like... Because isn't it that like you know, the United Kingdom came in and, like, did all that stuff to Pakistan. So they were like, oops, sorry, we really, like, fucked up your role. But if you want to come live here afterwards, like, you can. Or am I overparalyzed? I wish. I mean, I don't know. Like, I only know my story, my mom's story, uh, and also the people grew up around. And it was tough. Like, we, on our road, but there used to be, like, a family getting deported a month. And we got a deportation letter. So after about six, seven years in the country, uh, we got a letter through the post and I just remember seeing my mum in the living room and she opened it and she just just broke down. She was on the sofa, just like, she just couldn't move. And she basically told me, you know, everything we've built, all that hard work we've done, is it was all for nothing. Um, and my mum used to, she used to, she used to do a lot of work for the Labour Party and uh, she used to do rallies and she used to help other immigrants. She used to teach English to a lot of other immigrants in our uh, area. And uh, she was doing this like 
she was at this rally and then she got up and did this speech and she just broke down and there was a solicitor, solicitor in the audience who heard her story, was really moved and he said, I'll deal your case for free. Is and the solicitor then, like British for immigration lawyer? Lawyer, yeah, basically. Uh. So he, yeah, so otherwise she wouldn't have been able to afford that. But then also uh, a Labour MP was like, this woman has done so much for the community. Here's all of the culture-enriching activities she's involved in. She contributes so much. You know, they just they just had her back. People had her back. And the community stood up for her. And that was more often than not, you know, that wasn't the case for a lot of people. Uh, and especially people who couldn't speak English. Like, there were people who who, who tried, struggled, were sent back. And that was more of a reality. You know, we were lucky. Um, and then my dad was another six-year battle. We we used to have times when my dad used to go to sign on every two weeks. He'd go to the immigration office. Uh, and sometimes they would just keep him. They would just detain him. And this is in, you know, the days before a mobile phone. So my mum just used to, like, stay up all night crying. We'd be like, where's dad? And like, well, I don't know. I don't know if they've sent him back. I don't know if they're just keeping him for the night. So some horrible, tumultuous freaking times, man. And... You know, people think, oh, yeah, okay, fine. But you stayed in the country. You got a better life. Stop complaining. But the repercussions of that, you know, what it did to our relationship, my, my parents, they've broken up. I think the the strain that puts on a relationship, the the amount of therapy I'm doing to undo some of that shit, which is why I love comedy. Comedy was a was a, a, sa- a saving tool for, for me and my brother, you know, because we got to be silly. And we knew that the people were laughing in the room, things were going to be okay. I, I associated comedy with hope. Um, and I remember making these YouTube videos. That's how I started comedy. And when I used to put my parents in them, they were funny. Like, for once, they weren't arguing. They weren't stressed about being deported back to Pakistan. They weren't talking about money. They were just silly. My mum used to put... I used to give her a wig and then she used to transform into these characters. And I was like, what the... What? Mum, you're really good. And I remember being like, oh, my God, I think I could actually like my parents because they're funny. Uh, I love when you like when you realize like that the power dynamics in your relationship with your parents are shifting because you're an adult and you can start to see them more as people, which is really very fun. Um, But wait, I want to talk about like serious stuff again more. So, okay, so when we first started this conversation, you were saying that you felt like you couldn't bring together your Pakistani identity and then your queer identity. And so I think that's really interesting because really like that, you know, that is like what intersectionality is. Like you are British, you are Pakistani, you are gay. This is an intersectional, you know, beautiful person that you are. I also think that in the, in the spaces that the United Kingdom and the United States are in, especially in light of, you know, we, we, on I'm, I'm getting curious. We're just interviewing Deborah Archer, who's an incredible uh, civil rights advocate and lawyer. And and she was explaining to us, well, I was basically saying, asking her, you know, there's so many white people and so many people in the United States that just want to say, well, you know, slavery was like 150, 175 years ago. Like it's, it's over. Like it's, you know, this every, like, I don't see race. I don't see color. Like we're, I just see people. And really that is, you know, a really incredible, I think it's kind of a, a short-sighted, like uh, insensitive thing to say, because it's like, there's so much time lost, wages lost, opportunity costs lost, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years for black and brown, you know, Americans. And I think, you know, for British people, it's like, there is this, I think the culture of expressing 
an injustice or like the culture around expressing unfairness is so different in the United Kingdom than it is in the United States. I think that's one thing that's very different. Like we, you fucking pinch our toe. We are going to fucking scream about it. I think in the United Kingdom, it is a lot more silent. And I've been spending a lot more time there recently. And, you know, to see what the vitriol that like Meghan Markle has gone through and, and to see like the, this really intense, loathing for, so, I mean, obviously I'm talking about Pierce Morgan, but there's other British talking heads too that do this, where it's like, you've gone out and you've painted our whole country as racist. Like, you've gone out and you've written this op-ed or you've done this and you have, like, made our country seem racist. And I think it's, and, you know, we've, Tan has weighed in on that. Like, we've had Tan on this mm. show. We've, he's talked about his experience with racism in the United Kingdom. But I think that it's, like, to say that there is that there is racism present in a society or a country doesn't mean that the that there is something um evil or like unfixable or like there every society will always have issues like we're all and so I, I think basically I guess what I'm trying to say but I'm talking a whole lot about it is that it's like as someone who is an intersectionally marginalized person albeit extremely talented has you know really navigated the their way in the world very well his way in the world very well what do you think about the state of race in the United Kingdom, of the state of race in the United States? You know, does the same hopeful and devastation feel that you that you had on, like, queer people in Pakistan? It kind of feels the same. It's like both. Mm. I don't know. Tell I, me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I can't compare it to the U.S. because I've, I've not spent much time there. It's funny, you know, because, I like... We're at, we're, we're at a stage where there is a lot... There is backlash, isn't there? There's people going, what do you mean? I'm, you can't just call me racist. Like, people... In a way, it's like, don't make it about you. <laughs> you know, this isn't, in a way, it's like, we don't, I don't care to call someone racist and I don't care to like really make a point of them as a person being a racist. I'm just there pointing out what you did there. There was a lack of empathy in that. You know, there's a, I think people have to be proactive in the way they learn how to grow around this stuff because we're so uncomfortable about talking about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I guess it, you, though, specifically, and your family have been so affected by systemic racism. Like, it is this, it, it's, it's systemic racism. Like, your dad getting taken away when, because, like, why did your dad have to go and check in every two weeks? So they can make sure that he's not, like, running away, becoming a criminal. They could just keep an eye on him. So and, if, and also, and it's a power thing being like, look, you're here without a state, you know. But would an American immigrant or would a, uh, would a, would a French, would a Canadian, would a American, would any immigrant in that time have had to have gone and checked in every two weeks? No, I don't know why they did. I guess it seems like it's like a pack. Is it a Pakistan? Is it a Middle Eastern thing? Like, I mean, we didn't. So growing up, I, I would, I didn't see that systemic racism. I just saw it as this is a thing that happens. And right. actually a lot of people around me were going through a similar thing. So but I was like, oh, is, I guess this is normal. Is, but that is systemic racism. Like the fact that you know, that is systemic racism. The fact that, you know, um, you couldn't get into the United States is that is systemic racism because you check a box of this person was born in Pakistan. This person has visited Pakistan. This person has a penis. That means by our standards of, you know, uh, 
admitting someone, it points to terrorists. It points to threat. It points to, and it doesn't see any of the, you are a brilliant writer. You're a brilliant actor. You are a brilliant entertainer. You're a provenly brilliant entertainer. Like, as your videos that you produced, written and directed have massed, you know, millions and millions of views, which is like <clears throat> a light and a, and a life's experience that like, you know, a lot of people won't get to share and won't get an experience to because of the systemic racism mm. that you have encountered. So I guess it's like, you know, Boris Johnson is, you know, newly elected. Brexit is, it has happened. Um, they, they are seeming like they're going to move to a points-based immigration system. Mm. Is there, I guess the question is like, is there a silver lining? I mean, I guess there is. I mean, it's like, I feel like you've navigated this like system, but you're also like an able-bodied man. Mm. Like I, you know, I wonder like for female, for, it just, is there, is there other cool people doing cool things like that you, that like, who are you following on the gram that's British mm. and Pakistani and like doing cool stuff? Um, I actually, there's a night I go to in London called Hangama which is a queer hip-hop Bollywood night. And so I meet, I mean, that's my, like, spiritual home. <laughs> you know what I mean? When I'm feeling down, I, like, I go there and some of the performers there and, and what they're doing is run by someone called Ryan Lange. Um, and there's there's also Glamru. Have you heard of Glamru? Uh, they're, just, they're just doing their thing in their own way and they're not letting people tell them what they can and can't do. Um, and it's funny, you know, when you, when I'm in a room full of, uh, queer people of color, there is a, there's, there's a hunger, there's a passion there. And I think part of that is the immigrant work ethic. We were, you know, that was instilled in us when we were kids with, you know, the idea that like, I struggled to get to this country. I've made loads of sacrifices. So you, my child will not let me down. These are the marks you have to hit that pressure. And sometimes it was horrible. Sometimes it really got us through you know, we got good grades. We we knew how to work our asses off at the age of 12. We were like, you know, failure wasn't an option. And this, that's given us a lot of strength, but that's also given us a certain amount of fucked upness. You know what I mean? Like we to navigate through this world and still be a healthy, well-balanced person who can ha spends time investing in relationships, does the work on themselves, does the therapy, you know, has a well-balanced life. Like I am working so hard to make sure that I'm not only achieving all the markers of, of success that I feel like I need to, to prove myself to the world. And so I thought I was past all that. I thought we were through all that. And now I'm just this like, beautiful you know free spirit who just makes comedy and and can do stuff that's surreal and free and I can dance and rap and tell jokes and then you hit a wall and you're like oh oh shit okay reality check so I don't know is the answer I'm still trying to work out how I navigate through all that and still have a well-balanced life and not be bitter all the time yeah you know what I mean I'm fucking angry man well <laughs> yeah, which is weird because I'm not an angry person. And I'm like, how do I turn this anger into comedy? Because if I can't turn it into comedy, I also can't process it. <laughs> like, that's my way of coping with shit. Yeah. I mean, yeah, comedy feels like a really good a really good outlet. It's like one that I very much, you know, also use. Mm -hmm. I, I just have one more question. Um, do you think that the... Is... Well, I guess comparison is the thief of all joy. But... 
like if Donald Trump wins this year, would I be better off or worse off moving to the United Kingdom? Obviously, like you're probably going to have Boris for five more years, but he doesn't seem like he's such a climate change denier. No, here's what we're going to do. Okay. Make a different country? We're going to go to New Zealand. Oh. We're going to live on a shack on a beach and we're going to delete our Twitter accounts. Wait, and now I have one more thing, and then we'll start to go. So you accidentally turned your mom into an actress. Yes, let's unpack this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, you know, because I I used to put my mom in my videos, and she happened to be this amazingly charismatic, beautiful, talented person. And I was like, oh, that's funny. I never saw that side because you were so busy paying the bills. But basically, my um, my mom got spotted. Uh, I got a call from a producer in India one day. Um, this is after I, you know, I got, uh, some of my videos went viral and I got a bit of an online audience. Um, and they were like, yeah, we're casting for a lead role in a primetime TV series. I was like, okay, tell me more. They're like, oh, no, 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 we don't want you. We want your mum. <laughs> <laughs> so I asked my mum, I was like, mum, there's this thing. Do you want to audition for it? And she was like, yeah, why not? I'll give it a go. So we send off this tape. Don't think anything of it. Three months later, I get a call from the same producer. She's like, yeah, we want to cast your mum as the lead. Send her on the first plane to Mumbai. So my mum moves out to India. So what year is this? This is like six, seven years ago now. She starts working as a Bollywood actress, ends up staying there for five years. She can't go to a supermarket in India or in a South Asian area in the UK without getting mobbed. Yeah. We got to get her on the gram. I know. And not that, because we already talked about that one with the, we got to get a checkmark girl. I, you could retire next year, like off of your mom's endorsements on I Instagram. And you could literally just like write your comedy when you feel like, <laughs> when and if you feel like it. You know what, though? She doesn't need any more encouragement. You could be she her sonager. She the attention. You could be her sonager. Really? You think? Yeah. I want my mom to be my momager, but she doesn't want to do it. Momager. I love it. You could be a power broker sonager. I'll, pro- I'll propose it to her. Well, she's actually moved back to the UK now, and she's signed with my agent. <sighs> my mom's the dream, man. She's she's incredible. So what... Where, what's coming up for you? You work on sex education, which we love. Yeah. Massive fans. Very excited for season three because it just got officially renewed. Yeah, we're right in season three now. It's such a dream job, man. It's, it's very much a, like runaway success. You have to watch it. You watch, or you wrote season two, episode two. two. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, nailed yeah. it. So make sure you watch that. And then what else is coming up? Where else can people find you? Um, so I'm doing my new, I'm doing a new Edinburgh show at the Edinburgh Fringe this August. Um, all my live dates, tickets are on moan.co.uk and Moan R on Instagram. Um, yeah, I'm about, I'm doing shit. I've got a, I've got a Sky Comedy series coming out in, um, in October. A Sky Comedy series? Sky Comedy series. That's called- like all over the United Kingdom, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, I think it's on. It's going to be on Now TV as well. If, okay, last question, I swear to God. Yeah. And then actually there's one more after that. Oh, I was so, called Two Weeks to Live, by the way. Two Weeks to Live is the, two weeks to live. Uh, yeah. the Sky Comedy series? Yeah, with Maisie Williams. Oh my... Yeah. Subtle name drop. Uh-huh. Oh my God. Are you both, are you both starring mm-hmm. in it? Girl. We, we have a... We, we're, we're a couple. So if you had to name your comedy style in like one sentence. One sentence. Okay. It can be a run on. Slut dropping realness. Surreal. Silly. But with heart. That sounds nice. Love that. That's the best I can do. That's great. Was the the beginning slut dropping? Yeah. Slut dropping realness. Oh, I love that. I slut drop a lot in my, I think that's my life mission. Also, my life mission is to change the name from Slut Drop to Sex Positive Descent. 
The name is so judgy. We need to. I think if it. you keep showing your taint on stage, it's gonna happen. Okay. Yeah, you just have to like keep showing your taint to everybody. Sure. I'm just kidding. I'll do it. But I think that, that could make everyone happier. Yeah. Then last question is, I just like to say taint. I always have. <laughs> My last question is, uh, in this part of the podcast, like, what do we miss? What do you want to talk? What it's yogi recess? Like, you really wanted to do like revolve trikonasana, but I didn't see that coming because everyone hates doing revolve trikonasana, so I skipped it. I just I don't even triangle. know what that is. It's like I just did triangle pose in today's yoga class, but like you wanted to do revolve triangle, so uh, now you can go do that for like a minute and a half. Uh, the best bit I love doing at the end of a yoga class. Not literally that. I know, like, <laughs> I know, but I like to tell you anyway. Okay. I, you know when you just you, when you sit still and do nothing. Shavasana. I love shavasana. Yeah, shavasana. I wish the whole class could just be the shavasana. Yeah. So, but what's like the last minute of things that we missed? Did, is did like because you know someone told me the other day on the podcast that I non-binary explain a lot. Like I talk over people. So did I like interrupt you on something? Do you need to get a whole thought out? Like oh. I'm sure I did. What do you want to talk? Is there anything no? Else I you thought you let me talk way too much. Really? <laughs> I was like, when is when is he going to interrupt me? This is a tangent and a half. And it, no, none of it was that tangent. It was all very, really good. Okay, good. So I think I got it all out. This has been like therapy. Thank you. You're so welcome. You have a lot of rows of eyelashes. Yeah, I know. I know. I love them. Ah, I, I sometimes I just I I thank the universe for my eyebrows and my eyelashes. Yeah, they really gave the you a gift, good go. Gift yeah, from my ancestors. Well, thank you, Mama. And well, thank you, Moan. Yeah, Jonathan, it's been so fun. And now we're going to go do a show. Now we're going to go do a show in Australia and literally Brisbane. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Mawan Rizwan. You'll find links to his work on the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. See you play. That means, if you please, in French. And I also hope you're doing well through all of this incredibly challenging time. And I love you so much. Thanks so much for supporting Getting Curious, and I'll see you next time. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Getting Curious is produced by me, Julie Carrillo, Emily Bosick, Ray Ellis, Chelsea Jacobson, and Colin Anderson.